Timothy, and this week I'll be talking to apologist and founder of the Jude 3 Project, Lisa V. Fields, about a new apologetics curriculum entitled Through Eyes of Color. And I'm Garrick, and in the second half of today's program, we'll be talking about, but not giving instructions how, to sell our souls to the devil as we look at the 1986 film Crossroads. And I am excited to recommend a brand new book from B&H Academic entitled For God So Loved the World, edited by Walter Strickland and Dayton Hartman. For more information about For God So Loved the World and other great resources, visit our friends at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Timothy Paul Jones, and I have with me today Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. Lisa is a widely recognized apologist who has earned a bachelor's degree from the University of North Florida and a Master of Divinity degree from Liberty University. The mission of the Jude 3 Project is to help Christians to know what they believe and why, with a focus on equipping Christians of African descent in the United States and around the world. The Jude 3 Project has recently released an excellent apologetics curriculum for churches that's entitled Through Eyes of Color. And so, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth. Oh, thank you for having me, Timothy. I'm so honored to be here. Well, one of the questions we like to ask each of our guests, because we are also into music on this particular program, is if you could be part of any rock band in the entire history of rock and roll, what band would that be, and what would you be doing in that band? Maybe the Jackson 5. What would you be doing in the Jackson 5? I can't sing, but I'll try to be Michael. I wanted to ask you just about in terms of your background. When you were in college, you tell about how a professor really challenged your faith and forced you to rethink, in some sense, everything that you thought you had believed about the Bible. Could you just tell us about that journey and that story that you had from doubt to faith and maybe how that shaped what you do now? Yeah. So when I was in undergrad, I started off undergrad as an investment finance major. I was going to be a stockbroker on Wall Street. I had no ministry ambitions. So it's just God's providence that I'm doing what I'm doing now. But I'm a PK. So my father's a pastor. I grew up in church. And as I started diving more to my faith, I was like, let me take a New Testament course 
it couldn't hurt. It'll help me. It'll be an easy A because my parents taught me the scriptures. And so I got in class and my professor said the first day of class, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. And at that moment, I realized this wasn't going to be the easy A that I anticipated. And I really struggled through that class because I had never critically thought about why I believe what I believe, because I grew up in a Christian bubble. Most of my friends were Christian. Many of my friends fathers were also in ministry. So it was easy to, nobody really questioned. It was kind of our norm. I think the the one time I questioned my faith was when I was five and I was trying to figure out how they got the money to God. When they said, <laughs> when they said we're going to give offering, our tithes and offering, and it's an offering unto God. And I was like, well, how do they get the money to God? But that was the most that I had questioned and critically thought about why I believe what I believe. And so that really shaped me in that moment. And my father introduced me to Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And I started getting into apologetics to help navigate that course. And then I realized once I got into it, there are not many African-Americans that I see doing this. So there needs to be a bridge built. And that's kind of shaped what I do with the organization now. Well, you have started this apologetics ministry that's called the Jude 3 Project. And so could you just describe for our listeners what is unique, what is different about this particular apologetics organization? So this particular organization, the Jew 3 Project, really came, as I said, from wanting to bridge that gap. So it focuses on reaching the African-American context. And we do that in many different ways. We have a HBCU tour, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. We had our Black Church tour that we had to postpone because of all that's going on. We have our curriculum. We have our podcast, which has become widely popular And those are different ways we reach our context. And we try to focus on issues that plague the African-American context and deal with them from an apologetic standpoint. So what are some of the unique opportunities and maybe even the unique challenges that you see in African-American churches and historically black colleges and universities? What are some things you see that you want people to be aware of, be broadly aware of, that are unique challenges and opportunities that you see in those contexts? So the unique challenge, especially on HBCU campuses, is this whole concept is Christianity, white man's religion. And the reason people think that is because of slavery and how slave masters use scriptures from Paul and Peter that slaves submit to their their masters. And so it's really difficult for many to accept Christ because they view Christianity as a tool of oppression. And so that's one of the things we deal with. From that comes the problem of suffering, which I think is a consistent question all around in apologetics, but it takes on the unique umness of slavery in our context. And then you have the issue of black cults, which kind of springs from that. It's rooted in that issue as well. So I think those are some of the unique things. And I think it's a unique opportunity to educate. G3 Project mixed church history and apologetics regularly because we show that Christianity didn't start with slavery and many of the church fathers were African. So it's not a white man's religion. It's rare that you're going to find a European in scripture. (laughs) So it is important to note that and to note that anything can be manipulated as a tool of oppression. That doesn't mean the whole Bible is false. In addition to your work as an apologist, you've spent some time also in the financial services industry. And so I would like to ask you, what questions about God and faith and Christianity do you hear most often in that particular context? 
So I was involved in the financial services industry before I went to seminary in that gap for about two years, worked as a banker and then worked in mutual funds, fun times. And as a banker, I interacted with people of different faiths, especially atheists. My coworker was agnostic. She moved from agnostic to atheist, depending on which day it was. And one day she asked me, so she was like, so you believe that if I don't accept Jesus, that I'm going to hell. And she put me on the spot because we're in the middle of a workday and it was just dead. And I was like, huh, I don't want to say this, but I have to say it. And I said, yes, I believe that if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, unfortunately, you'll be eternally separated from him. And she really appreciated my honesty. (laughs) She was like, okay. And then it was like, she just changed the subject. But I think as time went on, she recognized that my faith was sincere and she would ask me questions every now and then about the Bible and share with me her personal struggles with faith. And it really was a reminder to me that it's okay to be honest about the hard parts of our faith. You know, sometimes we want to shy away from it because it's hard to articulate, but it doesn't have to be the end of a relationship. It could be a helpful tool in a relationship. One of the things you talk about a lot is incarnational apologetics, and you talk a lot about that. And so how in your engagements, particularly with young urban professionals, that's one of the the things that I know you do as well, what are some of the best ways to use incarnational apologetics and to engage with young urban professionals? Yes, I love the whole concept of incarnational apologetics. One of the biggest pushbacks that I hear all across the board is that Christianity is full of hypocrites. And I think the only way to respond to that is to show a life lived well, a life that honors God. And I think the greatest apologetic is the life we live, a demonstration that the power of God does transform, that it does work, that the fruit of the spirit actually comes from a transformed life. And so I think it is helpful to show like, There are Christians who actually live this out, and I think a life lived well in front of them demonstrates that. And what's interesting about that to me is that that's actually one of the dominant arguments for Christianity, particularly in the second century church fathers, is that Christians have a life lived well. They they have better ethics than other people. And unfortunately, we live in a world in which sometimes that's not actually been true, <laughs> but it's wonderful that they could make that case. And that is part of the case, is a life lived well, a life in which we are good for society and we are good for the people around us. That even if, I mean, one of the things I said over and over as a pastor to our church is I want people to look a sojourn church and to be able to say, I may despise what they believe, but I wish I had the love for others that they had. And that's one of my goals in that. That's that that kind of idea of that incarnational working this out in that way through our ethics and the ways that we engage with others. Well, let's flip that around to do with young urban professionals. What are some of the worst arguments or the worst approaches you've seen perhaps to actually engaging with young urban professionals? I think the worst is to glaze over history. When people hear people say Christianity is a white man's religion, they say things like, oh, well, there's many black churches across the nation. How could you think that Christianity is a white man's religion? Or, of course, it was in the East. It's not a white man's religion without taking seriously the history that's present but not knowing the history and not listening. So I think when we don't listen 
people are really trying to articulate when they make these claims, I think we lose them and lose credibility in conversation. So I think we just need to listen and see where are you coming from when you make these claims and understand the history. And I think that will be really helpful in our engagement of urban professionals. I think so. And I think that's one of the things we have to remember that for that grouping in particular, really for everyone, but particularly for them, they have been looking up often. They've been Googling and Wikipediaing and everything like that, the, the answers to some of these issues. And one of the things we have to remember is that we must be honest about failures because they're going to know about the failures. Now, they may have a skewed version of those and they may not have all their facts correct, but we can't deny certain things. We have to own up to certain things that have happened in the past and be honest about those. And sometimes to say, you know what, this really happened. And that's not the way Christians ought to have acted. And and I think that even goes down to not simply history as a whole and the big picture of history, but their own personal history. Because one of the things I find is one of the best things to do is to say to somebody like that, can you tell me when you first started feeling that way about Christianity? And one of the things I find so often is that they have a story, they have a history, and they have been hurt deeply, and they're trying to cope with that. And if we don't own up to that, if we don't listen to their story, listen to their history, then there's no way we can ever engage with them well in engaging with the gospel in their lives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, tell us about the book and the curriculum through eyes of color. I want our our listeners, I hope that they actually go out and purchase this, use this in their churches, but tell us about the vision of that. Tell us what's in it. Tell us what's offered through it. All about this curriculum through eyes of color. Yeah, so through eyes of color came because we were hearing pastors say, hey, we're using your podcast in our churches and we're kind of piecing it together, kind of developing some topics and some Q&A based on the podcast. And I was like, well, it would be really good if we created a resource to help them so they wouldn't have to do all of that legwork. And so we thought about like, what's the best way for Black Christians to know what they believe and why? But we wanted it to be accessible. We wanted it to be for everybody. You don't have to be a lover of theology or apologetics to get this. So we wanted to put the cookies on the bottom shelf And we just started going through podcasts and grouped them together and got a team together and said, hey, we really want to address these topics that are plaguing our community. And we wanted to start with the foundation because most Black cults today are thriving off of manipulation of the text. So we start with the interpretation of scripture, which I think is so vital. Biblical literacy, I think, will quell most of what we see in Black cults today. So we start, I think that's a little rare for an apologetic curriculum to start with hermeneutics, but we thought it was so important in our context to help people who have been manipulated by cults like the Hebrew Israelites. So we started with interpreting scripture. We moved from that to Black people in the Bible. Then we moved to early African Christianity. So you see the timeline there. Then we moved from there to contributions of the Black church. Then we went to Black cults, and then we went to places of contention in scripture like women and slavery. And so the goal was to create a robust framework for people because there are cults springing up all all the time. So we can't necessarily focus 
on cults, we have to give people the truth so they can be able to, to detect a lie. And that framework for me comes from how they detect counterfeit money. They don't give you every counterfeit because it's impossible to keep up with the amount of counterfeits. But they let those who detect it get acquainted with real money and spend hours with real money. And then they'll slip a counterfeit in and say, okay, which one is the real one? And because they spent so much time, they're able to identify the fake. And so that was our goal, kind of my thought process in the shaping of this curriculum to help people get a framework to be so in touch with what truth is that they could detect the lie and be able to wrestle with the text themselves and not have to go all the time to a leader to tell them what's true and what's false. And I think one of the things you do that I really appreciate in this particular curriculum is that you show the representation of Africans and persons of African descent throughout church history and in scripture itself. That's so important because what we find is over and over, we live in a culture, especially in the United States, in which there is a perceived default of being not a person of color. That is the perceived default Mm -hmm. uh, in that. And because of that, it's easy for people to assume that the Bible looks like our assumed default, so to speak. And that's so harmful. I realized that just recently, a year or two ago, I guess it was, two of our daughters are of, are of African descent. And one of them asked for, she was coloring something from church and she said, I need the pink crown. And she was handed the pink crown and she started coloring Jesus. And I said, honey, why are you doing that? And she said, that's what Jesus looks like. And in her mind, she's never heard that in her life. Nobody's told that to her in her entire life. There's nobody. Our pastor is African-American in our church. So she's surrounded always by a multiplicity of colors in our church and in our community. But she had somehow made the assumption, this is what Jesus looks like. And I said, honey, do you realize that Jesus' skin was probably a lot closer to your color than it was to my color? And that was just a revelation to her. And it made me realize the degree to which we have to say some of these things explicitly because the pressure of the culture presses us toward a vision of Scripture that isn't really what Scripture is. Scripture is this beautiful kaleidoscope of colors. It really is. It is a wide range of colors represented in Scripture and in the early church. And when we get to early church history, it becomes this even more beautiful kaleidoscope of colors. And yet sometimes we don't see that kaleidoscope of colors, not because it's not there, but rather because culturally we simply default to something that excludes a vast part of that cloud of witnesses. And we need to bring this up. So I really want to encourage our, our listeners, get this curriculum, use it in your churches, and help people to have a fuller and better and broader understanding of apologetics, yes, but also of their own cultural heritage. I just want people to pick this up because it's really helpful through and through in this. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much for joining us today on the program. We really appreciate you and appreciate the work that you are doing. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed my time here. Well, to learn more about Lisa, go to jude3project.com and then be sure to order the book through Eyes of Color today. Go to jude3project.com, click on that there, and you can order the book through Eyes of Color.
Well, now it's time for that point in the program when Garrick and I steal toys from our children and reveal those toys to one another in the hopes of becoming the winners of that week's toy box tournament contest. Mm. And so we have taken toys from our children. We have brought those toys into our 40,000 square foot studios that we each have in our own places, (laughs) in our homes. And we are going to display those and we are going to put them into battle against one another. And so, Garrick, what do you have today? Yes, for today's Toy Box Hero segment, this is a special, special day for me because I'm actually not stealing a toy from my middle child, my son, my nine-year-old son, but I'm actually reborrowing a toy of mine from my childhood from the year 1986, which now belongs to my son. And so I present to you none other than first-generation Transformer Autobot Blaster. Oh, (laughs) that's right. That's right. I do remember that one. What does he transform into? I'm trying to remember what he does. His name is Blaster. Yeah, so he's a boombox. Yeah. Of course, he's not in many of the recent either cartoon series or the Michael Bay films, because I think someone in history finally realized how awkward it is to have Transformers who aren't vehicles move. Because when they move as their transformed state in the cartoons, it always just looks so weird. It's like, hey, look, there's a floating gun moving through the air or a floating boombox. and Which so, was the problem with Megatron as the gun. Yes. And there's also the size issue. They have to resize at that point as well. Yeah, like, oh, you're a huge pistol. Like, oh, that makes no sense. Yeah, it's, it's very What weird. was the Decepticon equivalent? There was a, like the cassette and yeah. the Decepticon equivalent. Yep. I had that and it turns into a, a bird sound wave of some sort sound wave. wave yeah yep and sound wave and blaster actually have a couple of face-offs throughout the history of transformers blaster always always wins of course but yeah so that's blaster and this is actually my toy from back in 1986 my mom whether you just call her sentimental or a pack rat whatever you want to call her she rescued this toy as one of many toys she rescued from a house fire we had when i was in college and i got to pass it on to Eli. So I don't think he loves it near as much as I did, but whatever. And still do. Yeah. <laughs> and still do. Yeah, absolutely. Clearly. Still do. This is the version of Blaster that actually fits two cassettes, right? Two mini bots. So whoever Blaster is fighting today, it's not just Blaster you're fighting, but one of four possible mini bots that shoot out of his chest as cassettes and, and into little rabid animals of sorts. So, yeah. There it well, is. as much as I like Blaster and like Transformers, I'm sorry to say <gasps> that, that it's going to lose no, today. Impossible. There's no, there's no way because what I have here is Black oh, Panther. Oh, yeah. And mm. this is my youngest daughter's Black Panther. She is a very big fan of Black Panther. She was born in Ethiopia, which is just a few miles to the north of Wakanda, which we've talked about that it isn't a real place, but we really want it to be oh, a real place. Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> you and me and her both. And I think Black Panther, his outfit absorbs all energy and blasts it back at Blaster. I'm not sure how Black Panther can be defeated 
unless Blaster can simply stomp on Black Panther, but at the size of a stereo system, I'm not sure Black Panther can. No, be no, no. Remember, on. remember, it's 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 <laughs> awkward how it works. But whenever he's in Autobot form, he is you know like the size of Bumblebee and stuff. Suddenly Again, massive at that. But point. no, I'm we still with know. you. I'm still with you because the only chance that he really would have had is if you would have. Like, if you picked Iron Man, that would have been a little bit different because... Even Captain America, maybe, would have been different. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Because, yeah, like Iron Man, I could have gotten you with, like, an EMP, and suddenly Tony Stark becomes absolutely worthless without a suit. But, yeah, Black Panther, that's a bit different. bit different. Yeah, Black Panther is is difficult to defeat in when, he, when he is in his outfit. So, I think we have to... Man, make sure to take a picture of I will. Blaster. I will. To put Blaster up, because Blaster looks super cool. Yeah. I have not seen that one in so long one of, my, one of my faves that has been the funny thing is is remember there were actually were boom boxes that had double cassettes in them back then too that's the best part i'd forgotten about those if you're listening and you remember blaster or if you became a fan of transformers much later in life you have to spend a few minutes watching this basics of blaster video because he really does have some fun history like the fact that the very first version of him before he was blaster the very first japanese version actually played music before the american version but the very first one played music didn't have cassettes that could come out of his chest that was a later you know invention but just really fascinating stuff that even i had no idea about back in the day but yeah this is one all before michael bay destroyed (laughs) the transformers (laughs) back when transformers were awesome If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. Well, I'm Timothy, and I went to church a week or so ago, and because of that, as those of you know, I've been growing out my beard until I went to church, and I cut it off, and I think it took about a pound and a half off of my face doing so. I'm sad to see it go. I'm Garrick, and I once owned the cassette version of the soundtrack to the movie Howard the Duck. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Timothy, let's talk about some of the things that are going on with the podcast itself before we get to today's discussion. What do we have for the lovely folks out there? Well, we have got some mugs and some notebooks. By the way, I need to send you yours because <laughs> yes. you haven't gotten yours I've got yet. Nothing. nothing. We have mugs and notebooks that look incredible, and those have been going out to people who support the program on Patreon.com, which you can look us up on Patreon.com slash Three Chords and the Truth. Which means that listeners out there have mugs to drink coffee in and notebooks to write fancy things in, and I, the co-host of the podcast, do not. That 
seems we'll get those out this week yes we will get those out this week (laughs) okay (laughs) we've also gotten just a lot of different people who have listened who have let people know we have just on podbean alone we're past thirty thousand downloads of the program and that's in addition to on spotify and others that bring it as far as we can tell somewhere between 50 and sixty thousand listens to the program which is just pretty incredible pretty incredible it means a a lot of people because don't we have wouldn't anything. listen to us that's right. 60, that's right. A lot there's of people no way we would listen to us nothing 60, better to do with her you know my favorite thing about it i want to say thank you to anyone who has listened and, and anyone who has given us a recommendation to their friends and put their reputation on the line for us i'm especially thankful for anyone anywhere that have left comments and reviews or taken the time on social media over Twitter and other places to send kind and encouraging words to us. Those are my favorite moments is when I I get to read some of those. So thank you for all of that. We love doing this and we're glad that a few of you out there also enjoy what we do. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter. That's Apologetics Pod. We have just the coolest, simplest one, twitter.com slash Apologetics Pod. And you can keep track of what's going on there. Absolutely. Well, today's topic is a simple, lighthearted topic on selling your soul to the devil. I'm kidding, of course. According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so this raises a question that has been explored by far smarter people for hundreds of years in novels and songs and and all types of stories, and in a particular movie from, as we have already established, the greatest year in the history of the world, 1986. Yes, and that movie is not Iron Eagle or Top Gun, mm. both of which did come out in 1986. But they didn't have Selling Your Soul to the Devil, not not exactly, anyway. And this story of Selling Your Soul to the Devil, it's been around for more than a thousand years. And, and it has this idea of the devil having the power to give somebody what they want, something that they don't have that they want. And so the devil makes a deal with them in which the devil, in essence, says, if you can have this in your life, I get your soul. So I'll give you this thing in this life and I get your soul for eternity. And so it's this fascinating story that is turned up again and again and again. And so we're just going to explore the question of what is this story really even about and why has it kind of lasted so long? What does it tell us about the devil? What does it tell us about ourselves? And one of the greatest versions of this particular story shows up in the 1986 movie Crossroads. And this is a great movie, really one of the high points of 1986 in a year that was like one big high point was 1986. And this is a high point of the high points in 1986. And one of our greatest listeners, Brad Ost, has several times emailed me and said, you ought to look at the movie Crossroads and the guitar duel in that. And so, Brad, this one's for you. And we are doing this just as you requested on this program of looking at the movie Crossroads. around that time, I was aware of 
who Steve Vai was. I had some older brother of a friend in, in the neighborhood who had introduced me to Steve Vai and Ingve Malmstein and had those posters up in his in his room. And so the only thing that had stuck with me for all these years was the scene, the guitar battle scene with Ralph Macchio's character and Steve Vai. And so I was happy to revisit it now as a much older, much more mature and wise and intelligent Garrick Bailey. And I love the movie and can finally appreciate all of the other musical aspects, just the beautiful and compelling presentation of blues as a musical genre. But the story that is told behind blues, how Willie Brown's character is, much of his argument of the movie is that blues isn't just music, but it's it's an expression of an experience behind it that Ralph Macchio's character just doesn't get until much later in the movie. And so, so yes, I was glad to revisit this and now own Crossroads after having not seen it for several decades. Well, Eugene is Ralph Macchio's character in this movie. And as we know, Ralph Macchio is also the karate kid. And so you kind of have this inner expectation that in the midst of that guitar duel, what he's going to do is just lay out some karate kicks and defeat Steve Vai that way. That's right, he's going to crane kick him, you know, or something like (laughs) that. But but that's not what happens. You have Eugene, this young, classically trained guitar player, and he has perfect guitar technique, but he has no soul in his playing, really. And he becomes a obsessed with this legend of a lost song from a guy named Robert Johnson, who was a real historical person that we'll talk about a little bit later on. But Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil in exchange for his skill on the guitar. And there's some lost song out there that is the ultimate blues song that has been lost. And this character, Eugene, goes on a search for it. And to do it, he goes and finds Willie Brown. Now, again, Willie Brown was a real-life individual, but in real life, Willie Brown did not play the harmonica. He played the guitar. And there's this key scene in the movie Crossroads in which Eugene makes a joke about selling his soul to the devil, and Willie Brown slaps him across the face. And as it turns out, you find out as the movie unfolds that it's not Robert Johnson that sold his soul to the devil, but Willie Brown that had sold his soul to the devil for his skill musically. And so they end up in a guitar duel, and there's this guitar duel in which the devil's ringer guitar player, the devil's greatest guitar player, goes up against Eugene and if Eugene can win this contest, then Willie gets his soul back. But if Eugene loses, both Eugene and Willie, they both lose their souls to the devil. And so a great conflict, a great duel ensues in which the devil's ringer guitar player played by Steve Vai, he goes up against Eugene. And what's at stake is not only Willie's soul, but if Eugene loses, Eugene's soul as well. It seems to me that we never really find out if Eugene ever believes what's really at stake, right? In his mind, he's he's calling the devil's bluff who he doesn't believe to be the devil. At the very beginning, he's always figured that this story about Robert Johnson selling his soul and, and whatnot, that this is all folklore. We never 
really find out if he ever comes to kind of be a believer in this, but he sticks up for Willie, his friend, his new Mr. Miyagi, going against the devil and Steve Vai, the Cobra Kai of this story. (laughs) I just can't get away from the Karate Kid stuff. So Steve Vai, the devil's ringer, who also played, let's just all tie this together, also played the introduction to the Bill and Ted's bogus journey version of God Gave Rock and Roll to You. That's right. Which so, we have talked about before. Yes. That one. Yep. See how it all comes full it circle? Does. Everything touches, everything great touches on either 1986 or Bill and Ted. That's right. Just understand that. And of course, Bill and Ted's bogus journey also includes a deal with death and the devil, mm-hmm. though it does involve a wedgie and other things that is not involved. It's in- <laughs> much weirder, much weirder than Crossroads <laughs> <Definitely>. version. <laughs> so let's look at the legend of Robert Johnson and the song Crossroad or Crossroads or Crossroad Blues. You'll see it listed in many different ways, but it's all the same song or at least based on the same song. Robert Johnson, he was born near Jackson, Mississippi in And in 1936 and 1937, he recorded 29 blues songs. And that's all that survives from Robert Johnson is these 29 blues songs. And one of these songs, in fact, one of the greatest ones that has really shaped the history of the blues is the song Crossroads. Right. Some of the lyrics to the Robert Johnson version is, I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy now. Save poor Bob, if you please. Standing at the crossroad, tried to flag a ride. Didn't nobody seem to know me. Everybody passed me by. Standing at the crossroad, rising sun going down. I believe in my soul now. Poor Bob is sinking down. So these lyrics, they just may sound strange to us today. Like, what on earth is he even talking about? What what is he concerned about? What is he worried about? And to understand this song, this song in which this African-American man in the 1930s, he feels like he's in danger as he stands at a crossroad in Mississippi as the sun sets. And to understand that, we've got to look at what are called sundown laws. And to understand where sundown laws come from, we've got to go back to the late 19th century. So you've got from the Civil War to about 1877, African Americans who had been set free had made incredible social progress. Let's just think about it. in 1877 or around there, there were seven African-American representatives in the House. In the House of Representatives, there was a senator who was African-American from Mississippi. The governor of Louisiana was African-American. The lieutenant governors in Mississippi, South Carolina, and Louisiana were all African-American. The secretary of state in the state of Florida, I could go on and on, but there were all sorts of African-Americans who had made massive progress from slavery all the way to strong leadership 
in the American South. And one of the greatest things that comes out of this era is blues music. Blues music actually comes out of this era because what began to happen is blues musicians began to be able to explore their art and they were able to draw together sort of what are called the field hollers or the call and response chants from the cotton fields. They were able to bring that together with the music of the African-American church and they played in juke joints all the way through the South and they developed this musical form that combines lament and joy together. So during that period of reconstruction, what emerges is all these different things, this growth for African-Americans, these opportunities for African-Americans, but also the blues itself comes out of that. But all of that began to fall apart in 1877. What happened in 1877 is the Republican Party, they traded, in essence, the presidency for black lives. They basically said, if you'll let Rutherford B. Hayes become the president, then we will withdraw all federal presence out of the South so that you can do what you will with the African-American people. And Reconstruction comes to an end. This is the rise of Jim Crow with legal suppression, segregation, subjugation, that we still live under the effects of, in some sense, today. One of the expressions of this is what you see in the song Crossroads, and it's this idea of sundown towns. There were certain places that said, okay, we aren't saying you as an African-American person can't come to this neighborhood or come to this town or come to this area, but we are going to say this. If you stay after sunset, we are going to do things to you, and there would be signs put up that would say Inward, don't let the sun set on you here, in which African-Americans, if they were caught after sundown in certain places, they would be beaten, jailed, lynched by early police forces and others. And the singer, he's at this crossroads in this song, and he knows that he is doomed because he is in a sundown place and the sun is setting and he can't catch a ride to get somewhere safe. That's what the song Crossroads is ultimately and initially about. It's about somebody who is African-American caught in a place where they are going to have violence done to them because the sun's going down and they can't get themselves home. But the song, it takes another meaning later as a crossroad, as this place where in legend, Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil. And because of that, this song begins to be heard and interpreted in a completely different way in the decades that followed. You did wrong, you did wrong. Tell my friend Willie Brown. But in 1938, Robert Johnson was poisoned by the husband of a wife whom he was having an affair with, and he died after this. And to this day, there's even mystery about Robert Johnson. He has three separate grave sites. I don't know what to make of that. There are three separate grave sites for Robert Johnson. Nobody knows for sure which one he's actually buried in, but the legend that he sold his soul to the devil, it grew afterwards, and it certainly lives on still today. You can run, you can run, tell my friend Willie Brown. And I got the crossroad blues, my lord, baby, I'm sinking down. 
the story of individuals selling their soul to the devil in exchange for some talent or some possession or some life that they dream of goes back at least as far as the 6th century. That would be the 500s. So there's a story actually from the 500s, which I find to be actually just fascinating that there is stories like this going all the way back so early. There's a deacon in what we would call today Southeast Turkey. Cilicia is the the region. And this deacon's name was Theophilus. So this was Theophilus thing that you could possibly do, I guess. (laughs) So many Theophiluses back then. (laughs) Exactly. And so Theophilus was elected as the bishop of the church in Adana. But he turned down the position probably because he hoped to be offered it. It was kind of this false humility in which he turns down the position and he hopes to get offered the position again. This happened several times in the early church. Like when you reach for your wallet, when someone's like, oh, I'm going to pay for it. No, no, no. Let me get this. And Exactly. That's it. You're giving this kind of fake act at this point. Backfires on you. It backfired completely on him. So this position went to somebody else when he turned it down and he had actually wanted the position. And so this new bishop that was elected took away Theophilus's role even as a deacon. And so Theophilus went to the devil. How he does it exactly is a little bit unclear, but he told the devil he would sell his soul to become a bishop. So this is just like Willie Brown and Crossroads, just like the legends of Robert Johnson and Tommy Johnson about the guitar. And Satan said, I'll give you this role as a bishop, if you renounce Christ and the Virgin Mary. And so he does it. He renounces Christ. He renounces Mary. But then he is convicted of his sin. He changes his mind and he begs the Virgin Mary to intercede for him. It's kind of interesting in the history of theology. This is perhaps the very first reference to Mary as a mediatrix or intercessor, which of course becomes part of Roman Catholic tradition later on. But this seems to be one of the first times that ever she shows up in any literature. But Mary does intercede for him. He's forgiven. And then three days later, he wakes up and he finds the contract he signed with the devil laying on his chest, signed by the devil. It's the devil laying his claim on Theophilus of Adana. And so Theophilus runs to the bishop. He begs forgiveness, confesses the whole thing. The bishop burns the contract and then conveniently eliminating the conflict that there's going to be between two people who want to be bishop, Theophilus falls over dead for joy. Me and the devil were walking side by side Me and the devil were walking side by side Is this even possible, theologically speaking? And I think we'd have to say it really isn't in that it really, in some sense, ascribes a great deal more power and a different type of power to the devil than Scripture itself seems to ascribe to the devil. That's what it seems to me. Yeah, or related to that, this narrative gives much more power to us, to humans, than Scripture gives us. If in these narratives, if a person's soul didn't belong to the devil before, and so we would say if it doesn't belong to the devil, then it belongs to God, then could a human make a decision to hand over something that belongs to God to Satan? Scripture doesn't seem to make that allowance. 
Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that I have often in preaching said, look, if you could lose your salvation, you would have already. And I think in the same way we can say, if you could lose your soul, you would have already done it. If you have the capacity to lose your soul, you would have already done it by this point. And the fact is that God is the one who holds the power over our souls, not the devil, and not us. That's the important point. It's not just that the devil doesn't, it's that we don't even, God himself and God alone does. If it were possible for humans to sell out their future self, their eternal self, for temporal, this-worldly success, fame, power, all that, it wouldn't be just a narrative, just something we hear about every once in a while. This would become a common occurrence, such as the state of the human heart. And we would have a lot more amazing guitar players yes, if you could sell your soul yes, to the devil would. for guitar playing skills, because there are a lot of people who would certainly give up their soul for guitar playing skills and for other skills and experiences as well. But of course, this story just really persists. And probably the most familiar version of it is the one about Faust, Johann George Faust. And Johann George Faust was a 16th century German alchemist, again, a real human being, a real person. And he was an alchemist. And alchemists were always trying to find purer and purer forms of metals. And really kind of the holy grail of alchemy was the philosopher's stone, this metal or this substance so pure that it could actually give you the capacity to live forever. That's what alchemists were often looking for. Yeah, that's right. You heard it right, folks. Philosopher's stone, right? So, this is a, well, I say real. This is an actual historical concept, at least, and also the Philosopher's Stone being the original title, the actual title to the first book, year one of the Harry Potter series, which we Americans ruined when it came over, when, when we published it on our side of the pond, and something that I will never forgive us for, ever. Today, Faust isn't known primarily or maybe even at all for his experiments with metals. He's known for something else much stranger. Yeah, he moves from a famous con man to a man who makes a deal with the devil. And according to the story, the devil would give him superhuman powers for 24 years. And in exchange for that, he would give his soul to the devil. So the devil gets his soul. He gets superhuman powers for 24 years. And in some versions of the Faust story, the devil also gives him a poodle as well. So, <laughs> you know what to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cats, snakes. <laughs> These are the animals of choice for Satan. Well, I'm standing at the crossroads. I'm trying to flag a ride. I'm standing at the crossroads. Trying to flag a ride. So, so many pieces of this story show up in this amazing movie that we've mentioned and have barely gotten to at this point. <laughs> this movie from 1986, Crossroads. Yeah, the best part, of course, is how Eugene wins the duel. I mean, so spoiler alert right here. Okay, spoiler alert. Eugene wins the duel by incorporating a piece of classical music into this blues 
metal showdown. And the classical piece is from the violinist Niccolo Paganini, his fifth caprice. And here's why that's even interesting, because one of the legends was that Paganini's mother had sold his soul to the devil to be able to make him a great violinist. And when Eugene plays this classical piece, the devil's ringer, Steve Vai, can't match Paganini, and the devil tears up the contract. So this showdown, it starts with the blues, but it ends totally differently, a lot like Robert Johnson's song Crossroads. It had one meaning when it was originally written and performed, but then it develops this totally different meaning. But in it, what's woven into it and is beautiful and makes it so rich and beautiful in this is that it combines these elements of lament, this danger of a man being caught near a sundown town as an African-American man in the 1930s that develops into this later legend about a man who meets the devil and sells his soul. But in both of those, we still have this theme of danger and isolation that really kind of gives the song its its power, we might say. Yeah. The funny thing is that Robert Johnson's version of the song is not the version that most people have ever heard. Most of us have heard a couple of other different versions first before we ever hear Johnson's version. Perhaps the first time you ever heard the song was in watching this movie, in which Rye Cooter's version, who put together most, if not all, of the soundtrack for Crossroads, uh, where he has his version of Crossroads, or the one done by Eric Clapton and Cream, which is probably the most popular, most well-known version. Why is it so compelling? Why are our movies and plays and novels, why do they tap into this narrative so often throughout human history? I really think that it does. It reveals a dilemma that every single one of us feels. And that is, I think, is eternity really worth it? In other words, is living and giving up things sometimes in this life, is that really worth it for eternity? And does does eternity does it really matter more than here and now? Because here and now, it always feels to all of us like here and now is all there is. It's sometimes just hard for us to believe that eternity really matters. And I think the other thing that, like, that's part of it, then there's, I think there's one other component. It's all of us, if we're honest, have this feeling sometimes of if only I had that, I'd be satisfied. If I just had that, it would all be okay. If I just had that, And it reminds us that maybe if I just had that, it still wouldn't be satisfying to me because in each of these stories, somebody gets that, whatever that is, that one thing. And then they realize they want out of the deal, so to speak. And I'm reminded of a church father named Caesarius of Arles who said this, and I think it's just so beautifully stated about this idea, if if only I had that, I'd be satisfied. And he said, while there is so much in this world to love, This world is best loved in relation to the one who made it. God gave us earthly possessions so that we might love him. But sometimes we provoke God's displeasure when we love our gifts more than our God. 
And that's ultimately what we're doing at that point. We're saying, basically, if I had that gift, I would be satisfied if I had that. And we're loving the gift more than the God. And this kind of story reminds us, even though I don't think it can really happen or has really happened, somebody selling their soul to the devil, it reminds us that this gift is never enough to satisfy us, whatever that gift might be. Yeah, that's what I really appreciate about this particular telling of this age-old story. There's a, a moment later in the movie when Willie and Eugene, they make it back to Mississippi and Willie is confronting the devil again and, and basically saying, I, w- I want to call the deal off. And he gets into the the argument with the devil and, and basically says, you haven't held up your end of the bargain. I didn't get what I asked for. I didn't get what I wanted. He's told us bits of his story throughout the movie. And so at this point, we know that his fame was fleeting and he spent several years since in kind of a old folks home type hospital. And and I, I wish I would have written down the quote exactly because I, I won't say it as, as well as the movie does. But the devil's point is you got what you deserved and it's never quite like what we desired. It's never quite like what we wanted. And that's such a powerful point that could have been made several times in that movie. And I think it is even in, in more subtle ways. But if we go back to the question that Jesus poses that we started with earlier in the episode, he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or anyone or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So even if Willie did gain all that he wanted, Jesus asked the question, does that matter? Are you still at the end of all things? Are you still going to be glad that you made that deal? Are you are you going to be are you going to be truly satisfied? What good did it do you? What good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? What good is it? And that I think is just the underlying question in this very famous, very prevalent story of selling one's soul to the devil. And despite the prevalence of this ongoing story, there is no one trade we can make for our soul. But I think that there are a million tiny trades (laughs) that we make all the time in every part of our lives where we choose to live as if this life is the only one that matters. And it's how we spend our time. It's how we spend our resources. It's how we expend our emotions, whether we invest them in others spiritually, relationally, physically, or if we invest them in our own kingdom, in our own world, in ourselves. Now, think about what Augustine said in one of his sermons. Augustine said, the bellies of the poor are a better storehouse for our wealth than our own barns. Riches are redemption but only when we give them away. And I think that applies beyond just riches. It applies to all of our life. It's redeeming only when we give it away. And in one sense, all of us, in every moment of our lives, we're standing at a crossroads, this place where the spiritual realm and the material realm meet, and we choose whether what we take, what we do, and whether we'll take what we can get now or if we will choose what lasts for eternity. The eternal and the temporal intersect 
and we have to choose which one we will go with at the crossroads. And when God asks us to choose eternity, he's not asking us to choose anything that he himself hasn't already done. Because we find in the same context in which Jesus says, what will it gain you if you get the whole world but lose your soul? Jesus says that the Son of Man will be crucified. In other words, he's announcing that he's choosing eternity over what is temporal. He's choosing eternity over here and now. And I think as we look at the cross, we do see a place where the devil and lynching show up together again at a crossroads. When Jesus is hanged from a tree at the crossroads outside Jerusalem and the sun goes dark and the devil was there thinking he had won the victory. He had gained the souls, not just of one person, but of all humanity. We see this, this idea of the devil thinking he has won as somebody hangs at the crossroads. But in truth, the devil has been defeated. And because the devil has been defeated, we are not in danger of losing our souls if we've given and entrusted our souls to Christ. He holds our souls. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast.